Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. All right, welcome back to Fever Dreams. Now, Kelly, I got a question for you. Did you see this clip where talk radio host Dennis Prager appears to be making an argument in favor of incest? Yeah, I saw that, and I think I bleached my eyes and brain. So can you refresh for everyone what happened there? So I'm bringing this up because I want to make a larger point about Dennis Prager. The clip here, this got sort of legs beyond the normal universe that kind of clips usually go around. But he says... There's no secular argument against adult incest. Brother and sister want to make love? What's your argument? And then he goes on a little further. It takes many generations of inbreeding to do that. There is no secular argument against adult consensual incest. There's a religious <laughs> argument. Sex cannot enter family life. It's a big taboo. So, Kelly, what would you make of this? Well, I mean, this is clearly someone who's thought about this about 800% more than the average person. You start wondering just what led to that or really what led to him saying that on air. But yeah, I think this is probably part of some larger sex panic and i think you might have some insight on that yeah so i want to take you back to like 2009 will is interning at a oil field services company in texas driving or you got to drive 20 minutes to get lunch at whataburger every day and as i'm driving around i'm listening to the dennis prager show now dennis prager is a guy who has gotten a lot more famous since then because of prager U, where his youtube channel where he has i wish he was an accredited university but well i saw a car in my hometown with a prager U sticker on the back like it was an actual college the person had attended <laughs> banger so many, i almost left a note under the windshield wiper you stay. my son has watched 100 videos at prager you <laughs> and so i guess like basically the gist with dennis prager is he's, he's kind of a guy who operates he's not like as famous as, as some of these other figures but he's fascinating to me because he has this kind of like faux philosopher king pose and so and i'd be listening to his show and every couple days he had a theme show so it was like every wednesday for example might be the male female hour and so dennis is going to devote an hour of his show to talking about the differences between men and women. And this is a lot of kind of like proto Jordan Peterson stuff where as you can tell from this argument, he makes a lot of sort of like, I'm not a big philosophy guy, but, but basically he's making a lot of assumptions. So he'll say things like women prefer things to be ordered. Men prefer to go out and get things. Wait, no, hang on. That's the opposite of the Jordan Peterson one. The Jordan well, Peterson argument is that women are chaos dragons, I think. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Maybe I'm not doing Des's argument credit here, but what I'm saying is he goes on these like rambles. And as you can see from this one, basically he's making the point that like we have to be religious because otherwise everyone will just be getting down with their sister. These are the kind of like the mazes that listening to the Dennis Prager show leads you into. And I just felt that it was so great that everyone else on the internet got a little taste of this. I mean, the... You've been listening to this guy for like 20 minutes. And he's just saying, what the heck is this guy talking about? He's led me down a blind alley where we're talking about secular arguments against incest. What's going on here? So just a little slice of the Dennis Prager lifestyle. And don't worry, folks. He has a whole fake university on the internet that's brainwashing children on YouTube. If you're worried about your kid learning about furries in their elementary school, boy, do I have news for you about what they're going to learn at PragerU. <laughs> well, speaking of people with big ideas running amok on the internet. Kelly, you've got a new story. We're once again checking in on someone I did not think would be such a common topic on <laughs> Fever Dreams. Of course, I'm talking about rapper Kanye West, who's making big plays in the social media space. Yeah, I mean, big plays for a small website, right? Okay, so yesterday morning, Parler, you might remember it as the social media site that was kind of big before January 6th, and everybody dumped their January 6th videos on it. A little too big before January 6th. Yes, yes. It, it was like a very hot place to plan your insurrection. Yeah, and during the insurrection, it turned out to be kind of the live feed of 
everyone breaking federal laws. So you'd log in and you'd see people walking around the rotunda, uploading their footage in real time. So it does have a very rich and storied history in that one small respect. But after the Capitol riot, it just went kaput, right? The Apple store and the Google store temporarily stopped hosting it. Most people realized, "Mm, not actually a great place to upload my internet life. And it's really a ghost town these days. However, Kanye West, fresh off his anti-Semitic tirades, actually, I shouldn't say off, he's still doing them, announced on Monday, yeah, he's buying the thing. He's going Elon Musk, but for a smaller, nicher, more hate-filled platform. Just to stress people, I mean, how much Parler is irrelevant, even within the mostly irrelevant world of right-wing social networks. I mean, this site now since it's January 6th heyday is like, I mean, this is a fraction of what Gab is getting and certainly what True Social is getting. I mean, this is, if you wanted to buy a right-wing social media platform, this is not even the one that you would want to get. Oh, not at all. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure how much research Kanye did because this is actually coming in a moment when we've seen tons of research about how irrelevant these alternate social media platforms are. There was a Pew Research report that came out earlier this month saying only about 6% of Americans regularly get news from a whole panoply of right-wing social media sites. And among that, only 1% of people were using Parler regularly. I mean, I'm like one of the rare people who actually occasionally logs onto Parler. It's a ghost town, folks. I mean, you're seeing what Laura Loomer copy paste her incendiary Telegram post into there. You know, it's a drag when it's like auto posted from Telegram. Yeah. <laughs> this is the cut stuff. I mean, Kelly, give us a picture. I mean, what is it? Because honestly, I was trying to log into Parler after Kanye bought it and I was struggling to get back into my account. I mean, what's the scene like these days on Parler? Oh, wow. Okay. So one thing, I actually have a grievance. So I I gave Parler a fair shake, right? I had an account and I used it and they actually like wiped everybody's old posts after January 6th. They're like, what? Nope, nothing, nothing there anymore. So my posts, my posts are gone. There is nobody posting original content, right? Maybe Ali Alexander, those might be new posts. I haven't cross-checked them, but the Laura Loomers, the Dennis Pragers are all cross-posted from all their other social media feeds. Every once in a while like I'll, I'll try and find like a trending hashtag and it'll be like conservative mom and she's like hawking an MLM and it's got all the trending hashtags with Kanye and everything like that it is grim it is like Facebook marketplace but nobody in it grim not good stuff so we're talking about how this deal doesn't really make sense if you are a rational person who's trying to decide how to spend your money stuff like that however it might make sense if you're best friends with Candace Owens and Candace Owens's husband is the CEO of Parler, which is the case, <laughs> and presumably has some equity that will be paid out in this purchase. So that's kind of the other side of this is how much was Candace Owens saying, look, we don't know, maybe not at all. But it is certainly interesting that her husband will likely be getting a decent sized payout from this. Totally. Yeah. I mean, payout, I would say, again, without knowing figures, because they said we're not announcing the sales figure, or even when this deal is going to close yet, it sounds frankly like a bailout. I mean, Candace Owens, to refresh everyone's memory, she showed up with Kanye at a fashion show a couple weeks ago, both of them wearing White Lives Matter shirts. I'm not going to say Kanye is completely under the influence of someone. Obviously, he's an adult with agency. However, it does sound like she's got a bit of sway, a bit of influence over his thinking. And yeah, just a couple weeks after this not so hot picture, she is now buying her husband's floundering social media site. It seems certainly convenient if you're the person holding the bag for a site that gets, I looked it up, it's like 1.3 million monthly hits, which is abysmal. It's so bad. That stinks. It's hard to compare web traffic to a news website versus a social media network, but like a pretty decent article on a news website will get like a million hits. So the idea that like all of Parler is getting that. In fact, you can take this sort of one step further. So before this deal was announced, Candace Owens was really out there defending Kanye over his deranged anti-Semitic remarks. Now, Candace Owens is an employee of the Daily Wire, which is run by Ben Shapiro. And eventually he and some other people at the Daily Wire had to do a little pushback on that. Now, as Candace Owens is creating this nightmare for the Daily Wire and making them do cleanup and all this, is Ben Shapiro aware that Candace's husband is 
in the middle of cutting a deal to sell his company to Kanye. I mean, we don't know, but I certainly think it might be time for some old office chats over at Daily Wire Nashville. Previous segment was about incest talk and the right. Well, this is a really incestuous little network. Get Dennis Prager in here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we need to litigate. Oh, one more thing, because I do think it sort of speaks to the possibly dire financial straits of Parler. Since about December of last year, Parler has been sending out these weird spammy text messages to anyone like me who is dumb enough to give them their phone number. All right, I'm going to read some of these text messages I've got from Parler over the past year because they rock. The first one is kind of tangentially related to politics. It's a failed opponent of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez trying to get some eyeballs for his campaign. Didn't work. And then the next one is, as a Parler user, you're getting 15% off. We the people wine, America wine, made by patriots who love our country and customers. Following that is uh, Melania Trump's first limited time NFT collection, then Trump NFTs, another cryptocurrency for Trump. And the last text they sent me was, I have priority access to a video about corporate farming. (laughs) i'll just say you don't really get this kind of text message from facebook doesn't really seem like they're doing so well right i mean this is not the face of a thriving business i mean i think ultimately this can be understood as basically a meme play to put kanye in the running to be like in memes with elon musk and donald trump which we're already starting to see of these kind of like like we're going to shake up social media we've each got our social media network but while truth social trump's truth social at least has trump behind it although also a nightmare of potentially legal headaches ahead, as in the Washington Post wrote about recently with various executives defecting to the SEC and very interesting <laughs> stuff there that I think there's a lot more to come out on. And then obviously Elon Musk buying Twitter. I mean, Twitter's a massive website, but Parler is kind of like, why is Parler in the mix here at all? And I think this is the kind of thing that kind of, I think is trying to position himself in this very kind of like mogul category. And I think it helps with that. But I think in terms of like, does this matter to the average web user or is Parler suddenly going to terrorize all of us on the internet? I would say the answer is no. No, I think Parler actually occupies is a kind of unfortunate space between like the mainstream Twitter and the really just like distilled vitriol of something like Gab, right? You're going to pick your camp and I don't think too many people are going to fall into parlor, which is just run of the mill shitty. Since you mentioned Gab, I do want to mention as we close the segment, there is, I think, a question about where this puts Gab in the mix of all this. And I think Gab is probably going to just keep doing its thing because like you said, I mean, I think this parlor thing is just going to happen and fade away. But right before we got on the call, I was reading the Gab CEO's new book, Promoted Christian Nationalism, (laughs) and I got to a chapter where he says like hello scumbag journalist and i was like what (laughs) me and it literally said here's the part where if you control f jews here's where i'm gonna give my thoughts on the jews (laughs) really remarkable breaking of the fourth wall there and i certainly was like well yeah that was what i was looking for It's nice. It's like when they put, they know that you're going to skim the book. So they put the important stuff in a little info box at the end of the textbook. I appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew Torba. Everyone's talking about smart brevity now. We're doing a lot of these <laughs> kind of condensed read news media. So I think Gav's getting on the train there. Right. Just tell us what slurs you're going to use and let's move on. Dear Penthouse Forum, I never thought it would happen to me. <laughs> Kelly has an update on the Oath Keepers trial featuring some saucy correspondence. Kelly, what's going on? What's going on? What is going on, Will? That's such a good question. I mean, top line, Oath Keepers are on trial for the January 6th riot. This is one of the more important cases. We've got five members of the Oath Keepers, including their leader. They're facing seditious conspiracy charges. And in all seriousness, there's some pretty alarming stuff coming out of this trial. But being a gossip, what really jumped out to me in court yesterday was not the allegations that they were stocking up on weapons or planning to occupy D.C. No, it was text messages between Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes and his attorney Kelly Sorrell. These are racy. There's the possibility that they were sending them to each other as a joke, but they do kind of scan to me as I want to believe, <laughs> but they do actually scan to me as a... I don't know how you joke around with your... <laughs> so brief setup here. I mean, Stuart Rhodes, he's the guy who wears an eye patch. To be clear, it was not lost as a troop. It was lost during a sort of, I believe, an incident at a firearm range gone bad. He's also the guy we've talked about before who other Oath Keepers accused him of blowing their money on all kinds of sort of toys and gear for himself, including, I think, like he spent just a lot of money buying like 
ground beef and steaks. Yeah. And he did also cell phone games. And yeah, like an adult video store, he hit up at least once. That's sort of foreshadowing <laughs> for what's to come in the segment. <laughs> Meanwhile, Kelly Sorrell was, this, as you said, a lawyer for the Oath Keepers who is very outspoken on social media and is now herself under indictment as part of this trial. That's right. Yeah. So she's someone who has quite a lot staked in this trial. Frankly, her clients on trial, she's on trial. She's very central to a lot of January 6th stuff. She was the night before the riot in a video with a lot of key players. So she's pretty core to this. So she's making a weird defense for this group while also under a lot of scrutiny herself. And that kind of cuts against her when we start seeing what look like sex come out between her and Stuart Rhodes. Again, previously they would have said you can't include text between an attorney and a client in court violates attorney-client privilege. Well, the court is saying, is this attorney-client privilege? Because it seems pretty personal. I'm not going to read all of these because just dignity, but if I can find just maybe a tamer one, Kelly Sorrell is texting Stuart Rhodes. That's how I know you're trouble. You're too good at what you do. Whole bad boy thing. I am a damn moth to a flame. <laughs> By the way, I mean, the text message that's preceded this is basically like saying like, Ooh, I can't wait to get you into bed like growl. <laughs> This is kind of a high era for celebrity sex coming out. Obviously, Adam Levine was getting roasted for saying, like, yo, your body, wow, I can't wowzer. So this is part for the course. Stewart's getting his lewds out there. So, Kelly, I believe you talked to Stewart's ex-wife about this whole situation. Yeah, that's right. So Stewart is legally still wife, but she sued him for divorce in 2018. She's been trying like hell to get away from this guy for four years now. Her name is Tasha Adams. I reached out to her because just wondering what she thought. And she actually had some pretty interesting insight about these sex. She said, this shows that he's really self-indulgent. This is a quote from her. She said, to me, the biggest takeaway from this whole thing is that it's hard to put yourself in the mindset of someone who's going to do something like this. Most people don't want to fool around the night before a test. She's alluding to him making these sects right before the Capitol riot. She goes, it's stressful, right? To me, this shows the mindset. It wasn't stressful to him. He's high on dopamine or something. He's loving this. And she also said, because Stuart Rhodes was making this argument that the Oath Keepers were providing a legitimate security service on January 6th. They were protecting the VIPs, making sure all the people were protesting safely and responsibly. His ex-wife Tasha says he's not stressed out about working a security job or saying we've got to keep the VIPs safe. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. And that's the whole thing he's trying to say in his defense. She said he's not focused on any of this. If it were so important, it would be a huge focus to him. Instead, he's shopping and having sex, and that's literally all he cares about. <laughs> She's going off. Oh, uh. yeah. No, for real. Listen, this stuff comes up in court record. I th think he got a right to reply. Can you imagine how jacked up this dude was? He thought he was going to overthrow the government, allegedly. This sort of leads into something else, which is what's coming in about the Oath Keepers is that they had this thing called the Quick Reaction Force that was based in, I believe, Arlington. That's right. Yeah. Based out of like a Motel 6 or something like that. It was a hotel-based coup force. So across the river from D.C., and they're going to basically, my sense is they were sort of, they're trying to avoid the D.C. gun laws. And so they're sort of like, well, let's wait to see if we have to to flood the Capitol with these, with like AR-15s and stuff, if Trump calls on us. So we're going to be based in Arlington and just sort of be ready to rock and roll. Yeah, that's what's been coming out in this trial. So we've heard whispers of this quick reaction force before, and we've been seeing footage of it. There's videos of Oath Keepers with one of those luggage trolleys, but it's full of gun cases and they're just pushing it down the hotel hall. Absolutely surreal stuff. But in court, we had an FBI agent testify that she thought this force was meant to occupy D.C. if they thought they could get away with it. And this wasn't just some hobbyists with little pistols. On the way to D.C., Stuart Rhodes stopped at least, I think, six times. And he bought at least $20,000 worth of guns. That's so crazy. That's so many guns. That's a lot. That's way too many. Just every, like, you know, he's just driving by. He's like, oh, God, I should get another gun. <laughs> you know, I got to pull over. I don't even know how you get that many guns on a road trip going through the drive-thru or something like that. But these guys were really loaded. And I think these text messages and certainly their bank receipts suggest that maybe January 6th could have been a bit worse. We're having a chuckle here over Stuart, but it is very grim stuff. And you start talking about all these guns. I remember certainly when it was going down, certainly just, I mean, as someone who wasn't aware that much of the situation, assuming that they were off to kidnap some lawmakers or something like that. The other thing I would note about the quick reaction for us on sort of a lighter note is that there it's come out during this trial that there was a dude obsessed with like them getting a boat to go over the <laughs> Potomac because he's like, a boat oh. guy. so it's like, we're in Arlington and 
we need to cross the Potomac. But there are bridges and cars that you could use to do that. But he is saying, well, the parking's really going to be a mess. And look, I mean, I was around there. It's like at the point where you could park a few blocks away. Certainly. And the idea that it's like, all right, we're going to go do the coup, but I don't want any tickets. We need a boat. I think this speaks to the average Oath Keepers demographic. Proud Boys skew a little bit younger. Oath Keepers are 40s, 50s, 60s. This is dad logistics. They're going to show up to the airport two hours early. They've got all the guns. That, you know, it's, So it's it doesn't surprise me that they had a boat guy who was trying to avoid tolls. I just love that idea. Do you think we should do the boat for like the five minute boat ride? <laughs> it's just incredible. All right, Will, who is joining us for our guest interview this week? All right, Kelly, I find Turning Point USA to be an endlessly fascinating organization. So this week, we're joined by Kyle Spencer. She's a journalist and the author of a new book that covers Turning Point USA. It's Mastermind, Charlie Kirk, and a couple of other conservatives. It's out this week, and it's called Raising Them Right, the untold story of America's ultra-conservative youth movement and its plot for power. So I think she's got a lot of stories from inside these raucous TPUSA conferences and elsewhere. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. This week on Fever Dreams, we have journalist Kyle Spencer. She's the author of a new book on conservative young people. It's called Raising Them Right, and it's out this week, coming out on October 18th. Kyle, thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So your book covers a lot of sort of prominent conservative youth, and I guess youth, if you can call them that, in their 20s. (laughs) But the subtitle for this book could also be called, What's the Deal with Charlie Kirk? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA, people may know as maybe the most prominent sort of young Republican in the country, besides maybe, I don't know, Madison Cawthorn, something like that. Kyle, how did you get onto this story? So I was doing a lot of reporting on education for the New York Times and Politico, and I was also researching for Frontline, and I was on and off college campuses. And this is like right around 2017. So Trump was in office and things were heating up on these campuses. And I started to see a lot of gun rights activists planting themselves on these campuses and pushing very effectively in some cases to change their state gun rights laws so that young people could basically bring handguns to their math classes. And when you would talk to these guys, they were like these like flip-flop wearing dudes who looked like they were spent most of their time in their frat house drinking beer. They would tell you that it was that they had changed this legislation themselves, that they were actually doing this single-handedly on their own. It was just like something they were really into. I didn't believe it. And so I started researching. And of course, I discovered that the NRA and gun owners of America, which is even more radical than the NRA, if you can believe it, were behind this and that they were pumping millions of dollars onto these campuses for these gun rights movements. And as a journalist, I always think if it's happening somewhere, it's, it's happening in a lot of other places. And that's always been sort of a way I'll research trend stories. And so, of course, I discovered that it wasn't just the NRA that was funding, pumping money onto campuses. There was a lot of other right-wing groups that were doing it. And so I started to look for them. And then eventually I knew I I wanted to write something about this and I needed access. And that's when I kind of began begging folks to let me in and to find out what they were up to on the inside. So, Kyle, you open with some really vivid scenes from a Turning Point USA meeting. Can you sort of walk people through what's the scene there? What are the vibes that one of these conservative campus meetups. 
So when Charlie Kirk comes to town, it's a celebrity event. And it often is, and as we all probably know, the celebrity, the young celebrity tour is now becoming a kind of thing on college campuses. And that's partially because the right-wing quote-unquote youth movement has worked really hard to create celebrities and then to send them on the circuit. And many groups, including Young Americans for Freedom, spend thousands and millions, really, of dollars a year making this happen. But anyway, so a guy like Charlie Kirk arrives on the campus, and of course, there's a lot of pre-publicity, and there's a lot of advertising that happens. And then there's also a lot of kind of pretending that you have to get your tickets early because the place will be packed and you won't be able to get in or something, which of course is never true. But there are these like very large crowds that show up. And what I always found so interesting was that some of them were people that were opposed to Charlie and what he was doing. And you can see lots of videos in which people are yelling and screaming at him. But what was more surprising to me were the number of people that really believed in what he was saying and the diversity of these people. I mean, you would kind of expect, I guess, to have these khaki wearing college Republicans showing up at these events, but you had like lots of people who kind of looked like hipsters who would show up and nod their head and, and eventually say that they felt like Charlie really heard them and understood them. Right. So you mentioned millions from the NRA to begin with, but this is such a broader spectrum of funding here. What are some of the groups that are paying into this conservative college campus movement? So the first thing I think is really important to understand is that there is a, a kind of hub for all of these young groups, and that's the Leadership Institute, which is a insanely well-funded training academy for young conservatives. And it's very radical. And so no one should think that it's a nice little place where people go and learn how to make signs or something. I mean, it is a place where people learn how to vigorously and often very offensively put forth ideas that a lot of us find pretty repugnant. And it's a kind of a vicious place, actually. And the tactics that are taught are really like, we got to win at any cost. We got to make people hurt, this type of thing. So there's 20 plus million dollars every year that donors give to the Leadership Institute and the Leadership Institute trains people. It comes onto the campuses and helps them with their groups. And so there's that. And then you have like the libertarian group. So you have groups like Young Americans for Liberty and you have lots of libertarians that pony up every year to pump these organizations with money so that they can spread libertarian or some version of libertarianism onto college campuses. And then you have groups like these pro-life groups. They do the same thing. Their donors give them lots of money and this allows them to push their pro-life rhetoric on college campuses. I mean, it kind of runs the gamut. If there's a conservative talking point, there's some group that is spending money to put some kids on a college campus and pretend that these are ideas that they came up with themselves. It's interesting. When I think of Charlie Kirk, I don't think of a guy who's exactly like a huge well of charisma. How much is sort of the act that Turning Point USA is doing? I mean, how much of that is aimed at really, like in terms of these personalities, is aimed at really winning over conservative young people? And how much of it is sort of aimed at winning over older donors who like to see a conservative young person? So I got to do a lot of research on how Charlie built his rapport with donors. It's fascinating how much they loved him. I mean, they adore this guy. And part of the reason they adore him is he comes off as a kind of puppy dog. When he first meets a lot of these donors in 2012, he's desperate for friendship. He's desperate for camaraderie. And he has this sense that these Republican and conservative ideas are actually great ideas. And if only somebody could message them better to young people, that they would become popular with young people. And so donors were so turned on by him. And when I would talk to people early on who supported him, they would describe an atmosphere in which like everybody wanted to hang out with Charlie. And these are, we're talking about like octogenarians, like we're talking about like old Chicago suburban geezers who just like thought Charlie was super cool. But I think it's just like important to understand that he had that poll. And honestly, like if you're on the inside and you're a conservative and you meet Charlie, like he's a very endearing guy. He wanted to learn. He wanted to go out to dinner with you. He wanted to read the books you wanted him to read. He wanted to go fishing with you. He wanted to have God chats with you. Like he was endearing, but it's really wrong to think that he wasn't also endearing to young people. So folks who worked like really closely with him in high school, a lot of them felt like he was a jerk. He was 
just a geeky, awkward guy. And he was super driven even early on. And if that meant stomping on other people, even he would acknowledge that that was kind of a play he was willing to do. But in terms of like, as he grew the movement, he is really charismatic. And like when he got, once I met him, he was a lot more polished and he was like, I mean, this is the thing that I think people find really shocking. He's a really smart guy and he's super, like we're obsessed with politics, right? So is he. So actually, it's not uninteresting to talk to him because he has a lot of thoughts about why he's able to do what he wants on college campuses. You wouldn't, you would be surprised, maybe not surprised to learn how many thoughts he has about what the Democrats do wrong, like what the liberals do wrong, like the mistakes they're making. Like, I love talking to him in the beginning before A, he wouldn't talk to me and B, he just started to scare the hell out of me. So it's interesting that you point to these ideas that they have about what the left is doing. And I think to a certain extent, and you actually kind of hinted this in the book, they have modeled themselves after the left a little bit, or they're at least taking into account leftist tactics. Can you tell me a little about how these movements are maybe a reflection of what their rivals on the left are doing? Yeah, so I think we think nowadays of right-wingers as being really good with social media and with being able to break through the chaos and and the noise on social media and get their points across. And I think we all understand to some extent that it's a lot easier to message hate. It's a lot easier to message like really simple ideas like you're a victim of people of color who want rights they didn't used to have. These are like messages that can actually be pretty easy to spread. But it's also true that they work incredibly hard at it. And what the genesis of this and Charlie really following Charlie is a really great way to see this story unfold is that during the Obama era, the right wingers were so flabbergasted and literally like so angry that Obama was able to create the following that he was and that he didn't kind of do the normal because, of course, he comes out of Illinois and he wasn't really doing the Illinois politicking. He was just like going to fundraisers and going to grassroots groups. And that was kind of the way he built his own movement. And so, of course, as we all know, he's considered like the social media president. He pioneers with a lot of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, many of the ways that politicians and activists groups now talk to people online. So there is this this sense of being behind the eight ball, being for these young right-wingers. And so the first thing they want to do is catch up, right? The first thing they want to do is catch up. And then they want to figure out, well, how are they going to model themselves? And of course, they look at a lot of these like civil rights activists and activists in the 60s, free speechers and stuff. And they start to see some of the guides that they use, like Salinsky's guide. And those become like super powerful and important for them. Rules for radicals, right? It's rules for radicals. Yes. Mm -hmm. So how much of the appeal of something like Turning Point USA and the just gobs of money it has for the average college student who participates in its events? I mean, how much of the appeal is that it's like fun to go on a trip or or go to a conference somewhere. I mean, I, from I, this may not still be the case, but when I've talked to people who went to these conferences, they're in very appealing places often. They're in Miami, for example, or you get a trip to D.C. And then I know there would be like requirements. Well, you have to go to X number of events so that essentially you aren't just getting a free hotel room and a flight. Whereas I think when I was in college, I mean, there were not like a lot of liberal groups saying like, hey, you want to go to Miami for a weekend and listen to a couple of Democratic congressmen and then otherwise you get a free trip. So I do think just like the aspect of the fun, like go hang out in a hotel room for a weekend thing really is sort of unrivaled on the right. Yeah, I mean, it is really brilliant. Honestly, these conferences are like spring break. I mean, they're crazy. (laughs) They're really (laughs) crazy. And these kids have a ton of fun and they have a lot of sex and they do a lot of drinking and they're like in hotel rooms without a lot of supervision. So that is such a big draw. It speaks to the whole model. I mean, the Charlie Kirk's model and Turning Point's model is really first a kind of friendship model. It's a you're on this college campus and people don't really respect you and they don't like your ideas and a lot of them don't want to be friends with you. So come join us. And when you see them tabling on college campuses, I mean, there's always like, I always found it so interesting to see them tabling and then the liberal groups tabling. If you were agnostic, you would definitely want to go hang out with Charlie Kirk's table. There's like tons of swag, there's music, there's like little activities, there's candy. Then someone's telling you they're having a pizza party in a couple days, or do you want to go to the movies with all these people that are smiling and telling you that they want you to join them? And so that's like a huge part of it. The thing about that, 
that is a couple things. It's expensive. It's really expensive to send all these kids to these conferences. I mean, they'll spend millions of dollars on one con. They'll spend a million dollars on one conference and that's a small one, but it's really expensive. And also like once you get to these conferences, if you're, and I, I think this is like such an important point, if you're a progressive and you're like, you're in politics because you care about the disenfranchised, it's not necessarily a big party. But if you're a Republican and you're there because you feel like you need more liberty and freedom and people need to stop taking money from you, then it is a party. Yeah. So Charlie Kirk, obviously the not Gen Z, but, you know, young millennial iteration of this conservative youth movement. But as you point out in the book, this isn't the first time this has come around. This is you point back to like a Goldwater era movement. So what are some of the more historic roots of these attempts to get campus kids on the right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think like what I talk about in the story is that this conservative, this new, new conservatism that we know, I think a lot of people are talking about it now as as they understand the advances on these pro-life advances were in the works for years and years and years. So like after Goldwater lost his election, there were all of these super activated young people who loved Goldwater. They just, he was like a hero for them, a kind of Ronald Reagan figure before Ronald Reagan. And he lost and they were just absolutely devastated. And many of them went to Washington to start this movement. And at the same time, you have Buckley, who's building his group, Young Americans for Freedom. So he's got kids in his corner doing that. And then you have these publications that are starting. And then you start seeing a lot of kind of backroom politicking and kinds of really drawing up a map for the future. And Young Americans for Freedom did a lot of activism on college campuses. And for some reason, people don't really think or talk a lot about it. I think that Charlie's movement is bigger and it's more, and because of social media, it gets a lot more play and it gets a lot more attention. But it would be an untrue statement to say that some of these kind of crazy antics weren't happening on college campuses in the 60s and 70s. And then, of course, in the 80s, when we see like the Dartmouth Review and Dinesh D'Souza and all those folks doing their stuff. So the book covers Charlie Kirk, but it also covers Candace Owens, who is sort of risen from obscurity into this close associate of Ben Shapiro's and also Kanye West. I love that your book gets really into her background, which includes this kind of a classic moment of radicalization in which someone apolitical takes a major L online and decides to become a right winger. In her case, this involves this Gamergate website, or I guess it's not a Gamergate website, but she kind of inserted herself into the heat of Gamergate. Can you tell us about that story? Yes. So Candace Owens is this, I think a a kind of a young person in high school was just like looking to be famous. And she was, I mean, I love the story where her sister says that she did Grease, production of Grease, and she learned all her lines before anyone else because she was intended, she was going to arrive without needing any scripts. But anyway, so she also has this incident where there's an incident where somebody, and this is kind of the leading up to this, these men call her up, these young kids call her up and start yelling racist things at her. And this blows up at her high school and turns into this entire thing in her Connecticut community, which she finds really kind of devastating in the end and feels like everybody sort of loses the way that authorities handle this, right? So she feels like left-wingers and liberals already are kind of bullies, right? So as she's in her 20s and she's looking for something to do, she decides she's going to start this website in which she basically takes down bullies. She's going to out bullies, right? Like, so she's going to create this list where people can write down the names of the people who have bullied them online. And then I don't know what she thinks is going to happen. But this becomes super controversial because of it. Of course, everybody hates it, including the bullies and the people being bullied. And so she just gets like inundated with hate. And she ends up believing that some of the activists, particularly the gamer gate and the young gaming women who have been fighting for like more women's rights online, they're pitted against her and that they're just these classic liberals like the liberals who she feels screwed her in high school, that they're now screwing her again. And so this is like her story. Her story is that their enemies around and they tend to be liberal and they want to hurt her. Great. So there is this conception always that the left has young people in the bag, right? That it can usually take the youth vote for granted. Should the left be worried about these movements? Is this really something that you see gaining steam among young voters in the U.S.? Yeah. I mean, I think we know that college campuses are overwhelmingly liberal and progressive. But I think there's a couple of things 
we tend to overstate how liberal and progressive they are. I mean, we know that it's true that the Democrats have the youth vote in general, but it's also true that the Republican young voters that are out there are mostly white. And so there is this huge pocket of white people, young white people, that I think these right-wing young activists think that they can recruit. And the way that they think they can recruit them on college campuses is to highlight efforts by the left to create more equity for people of color and for people who are disenfranchised and to kind of play out this replacement theory taking place on college campuses. And if they if they do it right, it can be very persuasive, right? Particularly since progressive activists on college campuses although doing God's work, really doing incredible work to create greater equity on college campuses can be intolerant, can be challenging for people who disagree with them. So what these conservative kids do is really highlight every moment of intolerance on the left's part, blow it up, and then look to white kids and say, hey, look at that. Look at them. They're your enemy. On that topic, I mean, when we're talking about right-wing young people, there's also the issue of folks like Nick Fuentes and the Groypers, who are much more explicitly white supremacists, who have clashed with Turning Point USA and, and Charlie Kirk at events. When Turning Point USA tries to put on an event and they get shouted down or they'll get kicked out of... Yeah, yeah, I've been at them. Yeah. So I guess for me, I mean, I think we've seen Turning Point and Charlie Kirk really sort of outflanked on the right. And in many ways really pulled to the right by these sort of much more explicit like neo-Nazi Charlottesville marching types. I mean, as we talk here about the clash between the left and the right on campus, I mean, what is the future of this? I guess like essentially what Charlie Kirk represents is sort of a relatively mainstream Trumpian Republicanism that's being taken on on the right. I mean, so what is the future there of the campus sort of Republican battle within the right? Well, I think that on college campuses generally, you see this kind of conservatism that is being packaged by groups like Turning Point USA as moderate, when actually, if you dig a little deeper, it's very radical. And I don't think that the Nick Fuentes of the world have really radicalized Charlie. I think that's come, frankly, from his connections to the evangelical church more than anything, his connections to the gun industry. I think he's much more motivated by his donors than he is motivated by some guy who he kind of thinks of as a little bit of a gnat that he has to kind of... So Kyle, to push back on that. Yeah, push back on it. So there's this incident back in 2019, I think, where Charlie Kirk, this clip of him saying, I think we should staple an H-1B visa to every foreign student who graduates with a PhD, let's say, I'm kind of paraphrasing this, in the United States or a master's degree. And then this becomes really circulated around and Michelle Malkin and who's kind of like the based mom or what have you to the, the Groypers, they start going, they use this clip and they say like, Charlie Kirk's a simp, he's a shill on immigration. And then that's when they start shouting down Dan Crenshaw at Turning Point events and all this stuff. And then suddenly, about after a month of these events getting shut down, Charlie Kirk says, oh wait, we need to really clamp down on immigration and we need to, oh, forget these H-1B visas. So I think there, there's kind of this pretty obvious connection there in terms of Charlie bending to these Groyper groups. Okay, wait, I just want to stop you for a second so I understand this. So you're talking about the incident where at times when he talks about being supportive of legal immigration. Yes. He's saying like, let's bring in smart people of color from India. Like, that's what he's saying, right? Like, that's what you're saying that and then he changes his tone. Yes. And then he backs off on that after the Groypers start attacking their events. What was it that he said? Then he said, no, we don't want these people from other countries. Yes, exactly. OK, because I mean, he does a very careful dance, like extremely careful. Charlie very, very rarely actually takes down legal immigration. And I think that's how he plays to reports to be moderate is that he will talk about this difference between the folks who are here illegally and those who have come here through the front door. So I'll just, I'll say that, that I think it's not that easy to find Charlie actually taking down legal immigration. He doesn't really do it very often. I don't think at all. I mean, honestly, I still don't believe that he is, he's going where the wind is going. He's not being pulled. He's not being radicalized by Fuentes. He's being radicalized by the way he thinks young people are going to be motivated. I followed him for four years. I saw him radicalized. I saw him have these like sort of moderately disturbing views to having views that scared the hell out of me. But I don't think that has so much come from the right, right. What he does and he's always done is he winks at the right, right, right? 
He winks at white supremacists. He winks at white nationalists. He winks at anti-Semites. And he lets them know that if they want to join, that's okay. And when you talk to young people who are recruiting on college campuses, not just for his group, but for other right-wing groups that were supposedly moderate, they will tell you that they were never discouraged to turn away somebody who had white supremacist views, right? But it's more about like opening the tent as wide as possible and not really feeling like Fuentes is such a powerful force that he has to contend with him. And you might disagree with me. So speaking of the internal politics of Turning Point USA, I mean, it strikes me that one issue, another issue they face is preventing, I mean, you're talking about at least dozens of chapters around the country and struggling with these chapters, embarrassing them. And so obviously there have been these racist group chats that come out about Turning Point. I think of famously the diaper incident in which someone dressed up at a protest in a diaper and they were dubbed TP USA and all that kind of stuff. What struggles have they faced in terms of kind of trying to have this very professional image while sort of keeping this these kind of very independent-minded college students under their wing. Yeah, I mean, so it's so interesting because like the way that, and I write about this in my book, the way the media portrays any of these gaffes, this Turning Point USA gaffes, and particularly that diaper incident, the diaper gate, the media saw it as, oh, Charlie's going down, Turning Point USA is going down, oh, all the donors are going to get mad at him now. That's not what happened. That's never what happens. When Charlie Kirk gets attacked or when Turning Point USA gets attacked by the left-leaning media and becomes a, a subject of mockery, the money flows in. It flows in because Republican donors are not like progressive don- or liberal donors or left-wing donors who tend to, I feel like they uh, look for any excuse to distance themselves from. They're very fickle, right? They're feckless. They're, whereas the Republican donors are loyal. They come in when some, one of theirs is attacked. So I'd say that. And then interestingly enough, when they are accused of being racist, the attitude among donors is, oh gosh, we're always being called racist. That's just what they call us. And finally, with some of the bad behavior on these college campuses or some of the kind of immature behavior, when that started, you see it'll tell a lot of that with 17, 18. The sense was that the organization was getting really big, needed more money and needed more structure. So exactly the opposite happened. They were like, oh no, we need to support them more because obviously there need to be more people employed by this organization so they can kind of keep a handle on these younger folks. Great. Well, we've been joined by Kyle Spencer. She's the author of a new book on Charlie Kirk, Candace Owens, conservative young people. I think it's some great reporting inside these very vital and growing groups. It is called Raising Them Right, and it is out this week. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. This was amazing. And now for Fresh Hell, where, Will, I think you've watched another piece of masterpiece cinema for us. (laughs) So, Kelly, I actually, over the weekend, I watched the film Hellraiser for the first time, and I found it so disturbing that I truly had to get a piece of hell that would impress Pinhead himself. So, in preparation (laughs) for the podcast today, I loaded up Fox Nation because I was trying to find another piece of content there, which is, of course, Fox's premium streaming site. The Deep Cuts. Yeah, so I I was looking it up, and I was kind of looking at my Tucker Carlson originals, but then I couldn't help but notice that they had a video called The Trial of Hunter Biden, a mock trial for the American people. You be the judge. And I was like, stop everything. This segment has to be about the mock trial of Hunter Biden. Now, Kelly, you haven't had a chance to watch this yet because it just came out this week. But you can see the image here, Hunter Biden facing a jury. What are your emotions? What are you feeling about? Wow. Okay. So this looks really serious. This looks, again, I haven't seen this, but it's got kind of the Judge Judy courtroom vibe. There's dramatic lighting, cheap wood paneling. Hunter Biden is looking very grim on a high contrast movie poster set up. And yeah, the tagline is you be the judge. I like that. I like when people put me in the driver's seat. Well, then you're going to love this. So the trial of Hunter Biden is honestly one of the strangest pieces of content Fox News has ever produced. This is so weird. Now, the setup is we've got folks may remember Judge Joe Brown from syndicated TV, sort of an also ran to Judge Judy. Now, he's the judge. We're going to do a mock trial of Hunter Biden on basically the contents of the laptop. And we're going to have some fake attorneys, or I guess they're real attorneys, but they're not really representing Hunter Biden or prosecutors. And we're going to have a jury. And we're going to have Judge Joe Brown presiding over all of it. Now, we've got some screenshots here from it. This movie, as you can see, 
looks like it was made with roughly $13. Like, the lighting is awful. It makes My Son Hunter, the other bit of Hunter Biden ephemera that's out lately. I mean, it makes it look like Avatar. It looks awful. This is sort of middle school theater lighting. Not really high budget here. Look, I mean, the setup here, so we got Judge Joe Brown, who is just, he's getting up there in age. He was suspended from practicing law in the real world back in 2016. I was not able to ascertain whether his license had been restored, but it seems like not. And so he's just really slow. He's not nailing it. We've got representing Hunter Biden. We got some TV, some guy who like talks on Fox News sometimes. And the same thing for the prosecution. Not a lot of charisma going on here. We've got only six jurors. It seems like sort of they could not afford the full 12. So we've got six jurors. And so they do things like in the opening statement. And by the way, there's no one playing Hunter, which stinks. So they open and they have to constantly say this is a mock jury. Hunter has not been charged with anything because we know in the real world that Hunter has lawyered up and was doing this kind of weird quasi spying on the My Son Hunter production. And so these people now have to evaluate. Do we want to indict Hunter Biden or do we want to put him under the jail? And so it opens in the opening statement with the prosecutor just showing the jury Hunter Biden porn that was on his laptop. And now he's not under indictment for porn. Like he's under indictment for Ukraine stuff. And so the jury, there's just these insane. And I feel like I might get an HR lawsuit if I shared them with you, Kelly. But basically, (laughs) it's like the jury is just looking at like very stoically at pictures of Hunter doing his thing. And the fake defense attorney says, objection. And Judge Joe Brown says, like, I'm, I'm going to see where this is going. What I love about this, Will, is so you sent me the name of this. I'm like, OK, I'll give it a quick Google. I'll see what's floating around here. And there's actually like Fox News coverage of this mock trial as if it's a real one. So they've got Judge Joe Brown, you know, giving quotes about how he thinks it shook out, how he thinks this shows that real jurors would respond. And so it's really interesting. They're digging deep here for events that haven't yet happened. Like just the agitation to have Hunter Biden be indicted, that they're like, all right, screw it. We're doing a fake one. I mean, can you imagine if MSNBC was like the trial of Donald Trump for stealing documents and taking him to (laughs) Mar-a-Lago? Well, it's wild because there is this phenomenon on the right where every time one of their their buddies gets accused of something, Trump gets accused of hiding documents or perpetuating fraud with his real estate holdings. They always have to turn around and make some parallel version of this on the left, right? So it's saying, oh, actually, Obama had a ton of classified documents. Well, he didn't. And now that Trump is facing a lawsuit in New York State, New York State Attorney General for his real estate practices. Well, now they're doing model UN for Hunter Biden on things that he in his own right has not been indicted for. So much of it is just really focused on the obscene Hunter Biden pictures. At one point, his lawyer gets up and rips the pictures in half. And then it's Joe Brown's like, I can't believe this. (laughs) The other thing I want to point out here is that they have witnesses who are real life people involved in this saga. So there's like a New York Post reporter. There's the laptop store guy who then gets badgered by the fake lawyers and stuff. I mean, it's really incredibly weird. And then they also show the jury deliberations where they say these seem to be regular people who are then saying things like, well, what did Hunter mean by I've got to kick 10% up to the big guy? I mean, this is one of the just strangest media productions I've ever seen. Yeah, it sounds like 12 Angry Men, but not even a full theater budget. It does kind of, I think, speak to the void of content here, right? Because not even most of the Hunter Biden allegations are really, I think, that offensive to conservatives right there. One thing that they're rattling the saber for is him allegedly misrepresenting himself on a gun application. Well, they're not really that upset about people buying guns anyway. So that's why they have to keep dipping into like, look at the Hunter Biden porn, because that at least is salacious that they have probably more of a moral issue with. And Until anything really happens here, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel. I think it shows with a six-jury Model UN film sequence. This is really rough. I mean, I think you could get like a a law school to do this a lot better. I mean, the other thing I would like to preemptively make an ineffective assistance of counsel complaint on Hunter's behalf, (laughs) because like they got just like the most obnoxious guy to represent Hunter. And he's constantly like bumbling and stumbling around. And he gets up at one point and he's like, look, Hunter's behavior is disgusting. It's reprehensible, (laughs) all this. But oh, he's not on trial for that. And it's like, can't have your own lawyer saying that just throwing you under the bus. So I just feel like Fox 
Fox and Judge Joe here are not really giving Hunter a fair shake. I want them to, yes, make this movie and mass produce it and all that. But then 10 years later, they need to do an Adnan Syed serial thing where they realize that the council was ineffective and they make a <laughs> redemption of Hunter Biden fake trial. I think that would be really good. I think that's great. I send it right on to Fox Nation. <laughs> On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.